the Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 62. I'm really excited about today's talk because we're going to cover so much to do with making accessibility happen on the web and in apps. And my guest is someone who knows a lot about various aspects of accessibility and not just from one uh, point of view. Rain Michaels is the UX designer behind Google's Action Blocks and the new Enhanced Select Speak feature of Chrome OS. If that wasn't enough, she's also one of the maintainers of accessibility on the community-developed Drupal Content Management System and a co-chair of W3C's Cognitive Accessibility Task Force. Rain, welcome to Parallel. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to have you, and you, you wear so many hats. And, and Rain also, by the way, I should mention, sent me a lot of links to her work and the work of the group she's a part of that I'll have in the show notes. So it's it's really great to talk to you because you're not you're that person from Google, but you're definitely not just that person from Google. Uh, but let's start there. Let's start with your your work at Google. So you work as a UX designer and creating experiences for people with. Uh, and without accessibility needs. And how do you and how does Google think about the variety of different kinds of accessibility that, that you work on? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I can only speak for myself, not on behalf of Google. And I'll say, you know, Google as a company is quite large and has a lot of different UX designers who have different approaches, different product areas. So um, just acknowledging that this is really only speaking for myself. And in that light, I am actually quite privileged in my work because I really do get to consider all users, but I get to focus very specifically on the accessibility use cases. And I'm actually part of a a small team that's dedicated to cognitive accessibility So I do work across the different domains of accessibility, but I get to focus very specifically on one domain and how the work that I do can really benefit the lives and activities of daily living of a specific group of people. That's really cool. And I don't know how other organizations do accessibility, whether they do it in terms of product organizations or, but I haven't heard a lot of people talk about focusing on one kind of accessibility, cognitive accessibility specifically. And could you just talk about what that means? People with cognitive disabilities obviously have a variety of challenges when interacting with with content, but can you sort of give an overview of what cognitive accessibility is all about? I can try. It's a very vast domain in its own right. So cognitive accessibility covers a really broad spectrum of individuals who might range from people with learning disabilities, people with uh, neurodiversity, uh, individuals, I myself am autistic. And so I would fit into sort of the umbrella of neurodiverse users who might think differently or perceive content or interaction methods in a different way from what might be typically referred to as the general population. But cognitive accessibility also covers individuals who might be experiencing natural age-related cognitive changes or may have undergone some kind of a traumatic experience resulting in a traumatic brain injury. And what I find really 
difficult, complex, and wonderful about being an interaction designer in the space of cognitive accessibility is that I cannot think about my work from the perspective of a diagnosis. So a, a medical diagnosis is obviously useful from a uh, perhaps an educational standpoint or from a doctor's standpoint. But from my perspective as an interaction designer, what matters to me isn't what a person has as, a, as an individual diagnosis, but rather what are the areas of cognitive functioning where that individual may be quite strong and what are the areas of cognitive functioning where the individual may need some additional supports? So, for example, somebody who has experienced a traumatic brain injury or somebody like myself who is trying to work from home with two children, two small children and a dog and a cat, um, we might undergo moments of, uh, of short-term memory loss where or working memory loss, where we might be in the middle of a task and then all of a sudden, whatever it is that we did just a moment ago or whatever that next step that we need to take might just simply evaporate from our minds. And when that happens, maybe you're in the middle of trying to pay a bill or maybe you have a timeout on uh, trying to get tickets for something specific. And all of a sudden you end up in a situation where you're not quite sure what you've already done. And suddenly you end up with what is a genuine cognitive barrier to being able to complete the task that you're actually trying to do. And so as an interaction designer thinking specifically about cognitive accessibility, it's these kinds of user experiences or these moments in people's lives where all of a sudden the interface is genuinely blocking them from being able to perform whatever action or intent they were trying to do. Um, what's happening in their cognitive functioning that's causing that block? And what can we do on the interface side in order to sort of take advantage of whatever strengths they may have and allow them to tackle their challenge in a different way so that they can actually get through whatever it is they're trying to do? I want to talk a little bit later about your work with W3C because I'm sure that's focused on what kind of standards do we need to meet? What kind of guidelines are there for creating experiences that support folks with cognitive disabilities? But but let's start with, with your work at Google. So one of the projects you work on is called Action Blocks. Can you tell people a little bit about that for folks who may not know? Yes, yeah, so Action Blocks is actually quite a simple app, at least on the front end side. If you were to download it and play with it, it would appear quite simple. And what it is, is an Android app that's really meant to do only one thing. And that one thing is to create large one press buttons on your device home screen that will perform complex actions for you. And this app is specifically designed for individuals who might need support in various cognitive processes, uh, such as the ones that we may have already described. And if you think about uh, if you think about the steps that you need to follow with pretty much anything that you might do with your your phone, let's take one of the simplest uses of your phone, which is to make a phone call. If you really think about 
all of the decisions that you need to make when you're trying to make a phone call from your smartphone, you'll actually find that there are quite a lot of decision points or there's a lot of steps that you need to complete. There's a sort of task following that needs to happen. So you need to decide what app are you going to use to make that call? You might have three or four different calling apps on your phone. Is there a specific icon that you're looking for in order to tap that icon and make that call? Who is it that you're trying to call? And will you find them in your favorites? Will you find them in your contacts? And that's just the beginning, but there are other steps that you also need to take in terms of your own decision process. So in this case, what Action Blocks offers is literally one giant button on your screen that will enable you to call a very specific person using a specific app that's already all been predetermined. Is it a voice call? Is it, is it a video call? That's also been predetermined. So all you do is press that button. And I'll give you an example. My mom has action blocks set up on her phone and the blocks that I set up for her, I set up four blocks and that's it. So four big blocks. One of those blocks is get me directions home from here by walking so that if she's out walking her dog and she's not exactly sure where she ended up, she can just press that one button and then it will start speaking back to her the directions to get her home from wherever she's located. Um, another one says, text my daughter to let her know that I'm okay, which just sends me a text message that I already wrote that says, <laughs> Rain, I'm okay. Um, and then there's a couple more that I have for her, but that just gives you an example of now she doesn't have to make any choices other than to press that one large button on her home screen. And then you had the ability when you made those action blocks, I assume, to use pictures or colors or something that would be a good indicator for her that that's what that block does. Exactly. So the one that takes her home shows her a map of the area that her house is in that I set up for her to show that. And the one that texts me to tell me that she's okay has a picture of me with a little heart icon on it. So they're quite simple. They're very personalized. And that's an app that anybody can put on their Android phone. So would the action blocks just pop up on the home screen just looking like like apps or they, they have their own little separate area? So they're using what's called widgets. Action blocks as an app would be then set up by whoever's setting up those blocks. And then they would place the blocks as widgets that would just look like they don't quite look like app icons because they're larger, although you can customize the size so you can make them as large or small as you want. That sounds like it has so many applications, not only for people who have full-scale cognitive disabilities, but older folks who, whether their issue is vision or just the complexity of an interface on a phone, uh, it's the, the widget clearly you know, simplifies the task, and I assume they're pretty straightforward to, to and program may be too strong a word, but set up for the person on the other side who's making sure that it does what the person needs it to do. That's the goal. I hope they're relatively easy to set up. <laughs> um, another thing you work on is uh, text-to-speech Chrome OS and with Android. Is that Android as well? Or uh, rem remind me what your, your text-to-speech work is about. Oh, yeah. So this is something that makes me so happy. We've been working for quite a long time. Um, our The team that I'm on is not, uh, it's not on the Chrome OS team and it's not on the Android team but we get to collaborate with teams and 
help them with the types of uh, user scenarios that they are aiming to really improve. So I had the pleasure of working with the Chrome OS team on what's called Select to Speak, which is something that you can turn on in Chrome OS settings that allows you to select text and then it will speak that text back. And what we got to do was work very closely with educators and experts in the dyslexia space to really try to understand what individuals with various reading disabilities might need in terms of supports. And we found that reading is not a linear process. So when you're reading something visually, your eye might go back a paragraph or two, or you might jump ahead to help you find those sort of landmarks that will help you orient in your understanding of what you're reading. Uh, we also found that audio can be a far more successful way for individuals with various reading or visual processing challenges to be able to comprehend and really enjoy the text that they're reading. But when we found that, we learned that people who enjoy using audio uh, experiences for reading, they also may not actually want to read at a single audio speed. So if the if what they're reading is more complicated, maybe they'll want to slow it down. If what they're reading is quite straightforward, then they might get bored if they're listening to it at normal speeds. So they might want to speed it up so that they can actually maintain focus. Um, so we we had the opportunity to build these controls into Select to Speak and enable people to read with audio in a way that's not exactly linear and to control those speeds more effectively. So that was quite a really enjoyable thing to be able to do. There's some more voices coming to the Select to Speak feature as well? They were actually just released yesterday. And so, yes, they're, they're out now. So when you use Select to Speak on Chrome OS now, you can choose to use what are called natural language voices or enhanced voices. And these voices sound a lot more human. And so what it enables you to do is to listen to your reading experiences with a voice that is um, natural and understandable and doesn't feel like a robot. Uh, we also were able to tie into a lot of the different accents that we have available to us so that you can actually listen to what you're reading with an accent that is familiar and comfortable to you. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. I talked a couple of episodes ago about managing some financial affairs for a member of my family. And in fact, several of us are participating in that and we're having to buy some things online as well as purchase services online. And that's a challenge because I want to make sure that my family member's data is kept secure. But in a couple of cases, I'm dealing with merchants that I don't know and that are the only ones that sell this particular uh, product or service that we want. So it was a particular concern to me that I not be sharing financial information with companies that I wasn't familiar with even if the companies themselves are trusted. So privacy.com is the kind of tool that makes that transaction feel a lot more secure. 
Take control of your payments. Decide who can charge your card, how much, and how often. And you can also close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you never are accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. And Privacy is partnered with the fine folks at 1Password. You can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password account. All virtual cards created with 1Password will have the same security benefits of your other privacy cards. And you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. Head to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Go to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. Let me ask you about the other side of what we talked about at the beginning, about cognitive accessibility. You talked about the kind of people and the kind of challenges that might need some cognitive accessibility assistance. But on W3C, and I'm sure in your work with Google, I'm sure there's a a need to uh, work towards standards that make it possible for uh, developers and UX designers to create experiences that are good for people with all kinds of cognitive challenges. So can you talk about either what some of those are or sort of how you go about thinking about what those should be, given the variety of cognitive issues that people are going to have? It is exceptionally challenging to think about cognitive accessibility when designing because two people can have the exact same diagnosis, but vastly different or even contradictory needs. So, for example, you might find two individuals with dyslexia, uh, one who finds that reading orally is better for them and they enjoy reading with the sound as their solution. And then another individual might find that to be sort of overwhelming and not want all of that sensory experience that comes with hearing what you're reading. So that individual may actually prefer text transformation or other kinds of supports for their reading experience. And the other challenge is that cognitive accessibility itself is not a very well-defined space yet. It's especially not when you think of it in relation to screen reader or motor accessibility. And this really comes from, I would say, uh, genuinely from kind of a, a human rights challenge that we've had or a kind of misconception and global bias or stigma or um, misunderstanding around cognitive difference and cognitive disabilities. We we often think about, we hear the term cognitive disability and we think about um, delay or intellectual challenges. And this isn't actually true. Uh, somebody can have a cognitive disability or difference and still be an exceptionally strong, creative intelligent person, there's not really a direct relationship between capabilities and a cognitive difference. So because of this sort of misunderstanding of of the brain, it's really caused a delay in hearing from or considering the needs of people with a broad range of cognitive differences. We have a lot more awareness now, and so the interest is 
starting to bubble up a little bit. And we're starting to see people thinking about the cognitive area. Uh, some of this is coming from the popularity of universal design for learning and realizing that all learners are different. Um, and also, I think some of this is just coming from a recognition that we finally have that the global population itself is living longer, which means that there is a large group of people, a very powerful large group of people that is impacted by kind of natural cognitive changes. So um, to answer your question about guidelines or specifications or what's out there, it's all very new and as part of the W3C's Cognitive Accessibility Task Force, I got to be part of releasing a very recent supplemental note that's now available for those who reference WCAG guidelines, WCAG. And, um, and that note that we've published, that supplemental note is called Making Content Usable for People with Cognitive and Learning Disabilities. And I believe that you have that URL, so hopefully it'll be available in the show notes. Absolutely. It is a massive document. It took me about 12 hours to do a final proofread on it before we launched it. And that final proofread was with text-to-speech at 2x speed, because that's <laughs> how I use my text-to-speech. So you're saying note is not a quite accurate representation <laughs> of what this document is. No, it is quite long. And, you know, we're working on trying to create other ways to present this content, but we wanted to get it out. So what there is now is this very thorough, very comprehensive document with a lot of well-researched information that includes personas, stories that help you understand why certain cognitive uh, experiences can create genuine barriers to interfaces, as well as design patterns that you might consider when you're creating experiences so that you can help sort of break down some of those barriers. And is it at the point because I know developers, even people who are even and designers too, I guess, people who are building things, if they're used to W3C at all or, or WCAG specifically, they're looking for what are the rules? What are the rules? And it sounds like you're perhaps not at that point with this material. The challenge with getting to the point of being able to say, here's a strict rule, is that when it comes to the guidelines that are published on WCAG. So uh, if you're looking to follow, you know, WCAG 2.1 level AA guidelines and make sure that you are conforming to what's in that specific release of WCAG, um, it's really important to recognize that everything that's in there has to be very easily testable. There have to be some very clear quantitative ways to measure whether or not you have conformed to those guidelines. And when it comes to the cognitive space, it's really difficult to create those metrics and to create that level of testability. So for that reason, it may take quite a while before we even have the technology to make it possible to have something as sort of strictly testable as people are often uh, looking to when they're thinking about something like WCAG. Would it be possible or even within the scope of what W3C would do 
to provide guidelines for people who wanted to test against what they were building for cognitive for support for cognitive disabilities. Oh, absolutely. That is something that we're working towards in future releases of WCAG guidelines. But it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, it just sounds like, so. I mean, I'm not even sure, and, and it's because I'm not as familiar with this space as I am with the ones that have the rules, you know, you have to have this color contrast ratio, and you have to have, label your headings in, in such a way, and use ARIA or don't use ARIA, and it just sounds like this is a an area where it's going to be very difficult to get, as you said, it's going to be very difficult to get to a sort of a black or white rule, and even testing or user testing or you know evaluation of something that's being prototyped it it seems like to some extent you're going to you're going to go based on the reactions of the people that you happen to have using those experiences so you could say well I want somebody with dyslexia I want somebody with dysgraphia whatever various cognitive uh, differences there are but you're not going to get all of them right it's an ever changing sort of experience You do have to be open to the feedback of the people that are actually making use of the tools and recognize that sometimes there may be needs that you hadn't quite thought of. There are a couple of pretty straightforward pieces of the guidance that are things that any designer or anyone building an interface can think about and keep in mind that will really help with cognitive accessibility. And one of those is thinking about personalization and adaptation. So if you're creating something, make sure that you're thinking about whether or not the user has large font sizes in their preferences. Or if a user is choosing to make use of an extension that changes the font that they're using or changes their color scheme to ensure that that extension is not blocked in your interface. Um, Another really straightforward one that can make a huge difference, we spoke about memory and working memory earlier on. But to think about as your individual progresses through one of the journeys that you have put forth in your uh, website or your application, do you have screens along the way that expect that the user remembers what they did on the previous screen? And if you do, is there a way that you can move some information from that previous screen and onto the next screen so that the user doesn't have to carry that information in their memory, but can instead actually refer to it on the screen where they're being expected to recall that information? Are those the sorts of things that can be done in such a way that a person with a cognitive difference can benefit, but also that the experience meets the goals overall for people who don't have cognitive differences. So, you, you know, people there's, there's, you know, as, as a, as a writer and an editor, you know, you're always thinking about not repeating yourself or, or, you know, you've, you've put this content here and then you've given somebody an instruction and they move on to the next thing. And people are thinking in terms of the sort of understood level of either mental acuity or you know, cognitive ability to process information. And so I, I wonder, do you, are you, do you end up running the risk of creating separate experiences or is the goal to make sure that everybody can use the same experience effectively? I absolutely love this question. There's a number of different ways to, a number of different 
ways in which I want to respond. <laughs> Take um, your time. <laughs> the first response that I have is just, it's so important to um, sort of look back on our history of every time as society has tried to create separate experiences for people who are different, no matter how much effort has gone into making those experiences equal, they never are. So if one creates a separate experience, it just, it will never be equal and it will eventually become too much work to maintain it. So eventually it'll just get out of date and be abandoned. So that in and of itself is a very, it's kind of a losing solution. And, um, but I get asked that so many times because and I think I've even done it myself in my own career where it's like, well, you know, I want the perfect experience for this type of user. And then I want the perfect experience for this type of user. So instead of trying to figure out as a designer how to create something that works for both, I'll create the perfect experience for each. And um, so I, I would like to sort of challenge all of us to move away from that and that we can actually come up with better designs for both populations by finding a way to make it work in the one and being more creative and innovating more in the one experience. It's not easy, it's definitely a challenge, but I think it's where the source of real innovation can come from. So that's that's one response that, that I have. Uh, but the other response is in some ways contradictory to what I just said, which is that everybody needs something different. And when I say everybody, I really do mean everybody. There's no such thing. I think uh, I think I've seen this from my manager actually, as a tagline. Uh, I'm stealing it from somebody, but there's no such thing as a typical user. And if we think about our own daily lives as people, we realize that there are many moments in our own lives where we experience cognitive challenges where some aspects of our own cognitive functioning is just, we, we don't have access in that moment to our ability to focus. We are exhausted. We are being asked by many different aspects of our environment to sort of think about so many different things at once that now we can't remember what happened just before. So, what I would like to challenge us to do in addition to creating uh, a single experience that does serve everyone is to also allow that single experience to adapt to the unique needs of everyone. So instead of designing something that's sort of pixel perfect for that one person, to think about the fact that we are designing a delivery mechanism that's going to be consumed under all different types of conditions, and we don't know what those conditions will be. So we have to think in terms of the goal of what needs to get across and the different ways that it might be received on the other end. What one of us hasn't said, oh, wow, I was in a brain fog, or I, I just missed that thing there, and we usually have the opportunity to quote unquote, you know, to catch up. But that's for people who don't necessarily have cognitive challenges. But uh, if you do have a challenge, then you, you face an environment that is not 
designed or intended for you in in most cases. And then I, so I guess I don't even know whether I have a question there other than just to say, it, it seems like that's a difficult thing to explain in depth to designers who don't have that background or, or haven't been, haven't focused on people with cognitive challenges. And other than an incredibly detailed technical document, I, I wonder document. I wonder what some of the ways you communicate with uh, designers about what they can actually do. And, and, and you, you gave a couple of tips earlier, but are, are there other things you would encourage people to think about as they try to create experiences that serve more people? Yes. So one of the examples that I gave was not relying on memory. Um, another example that I'll give, I, I gave a talk about this not too long ago, uh, thinking about comprehension and understanding and how when we when we write or when we create icons or visual designs or when we choose sounds for interfaces, we think about the sort of cultural understanding that we have around us and we have all kinds of metaphors that are sort of built into our knowledge of the world and we might think of or we might imagine one thing and we know that it means something else. So an example would be uh, the, the expression, don't design in a vacuum. When I say don't design in a vacuum, most designers will have gone through enough of an educational experience and heard that uh, sort of expression enough that they'll know that it means don't design by yourself. But for somebody like me who's autistic or uh, for you know, my son is also autistic, we may hear that expression and even knowing what it means, we might actually picture a designer drawing inside of a vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. uh, this happened to me just the other day when a colleague of mine was talking about ordering orange glasses. And uh, she was talking about ordering glasses, cups, cups for drinking orange juice. And I heard orange glasses as in eyeglasses. And so for a few minutes, we were actually talking about two completely different things. It's, it sounds like a language barrier, some, something similar to that. And, and obviously, people are focused on the need for either translation directly or uh, making material available in, in multiple languages. And it sounds like, in, to some degree, approaching it like a language might be, might be a way to address people with cognitive differences. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And that's something that we've actually been talking about quite a bit in the context of the Cognitive Accessibility Task Force and where there are intersections between internationalization and thinking about actually, you know, localizing experiences for specific locations. If you have a generalized experience that's meant to be used all over the globe, can it actually effectively be localized? And the very same choices that designers make and content creators make when they are building those interfaces and producing that content um, around thinking about how their content will be internationalized and localized are the same choices that will often impact understandability for people with cognitive difference or perception differences. 
I want to pivot and talk a little bit about about Drupal, but I don't want to do that before I make sure. Are there are there any things about cognitive accessibility that you you'd like to highlight that we didn't talk about? Yes, I think the important thing to highlight is that cognitive accessibility is a really large group of people, and I think it's often easy to think about cognitive accessibility as something that serves kind of a small group of people who may or may not be in your target user base. But the truth is that there are people with cognitive differences or who need supports, who need accessibility supports, who are in all areas of life and work. There are executives who have a traumatic brain injury. There are professors with dyslexia. There are accountants with dyscalculia. And so really thinking about the fact that even though it seems like a niche group of users, it's not. And even if you're designing a complex dashboard for a business owner, it's still important to think about cognitive accessibility because individuals with cognitive accessibility needs are still your users and may actually be a fairly large user base. Well, let's talk a little bit about your your work at Drupal. And I will confess that I probably kept better track of what was going on with the Drupal content management system a few years ago than I have in, in recent years. I, I have personally not used it in quite some time, but I, I know a number of people who have. And so I guess give us a sense of what's going on with development of Drupal and, and also just remind us how Drupal comes to be. It's a, it's a community uh, built uh, platform, as I think, as I mentioned earlier, but that might not describe it precisely. I think it's a really good way to describe it. There are two things that, from my perspective, make Drupal really special. One is its customizability. So as a content management system, you can take it as kind of a um, I like to think of it as a giant jumbled box of every kind of Lego you could possibly imagine. And then you can take that box and go into it and start to build whatever you can come up with. So that's one thing that really makes Drupal special. And then the other thing that makes it special is its community. People who use Drupal, they choose to use it because, largely because of its customizability which means that they also are themselves doing customization within Drupal and sometimes creating new modules or finding potential issues within Drupal core. And so what happens is that the community themselves will quickly sort of report or even find solutions to bugs or other sort of less than ideal experiences within Drupal. And that makes it very much a community-built content management system. Uh, and by community, we're talking also here about an international community. So it's being created by people with a very broad and diverse uh, perspective base, meaning that it really has a lot of different minds and ways of thinking going into creating what's within it, which is also one of the reasons why it's so flexible and so customizable. 
The other thing about this is because of its flexibility, it's seen such a large adoption by educational institutions and international governments. And then that results in the people adopting it having to adhere to some very strict accessibility guidelines. So those individuals are looking for all of the accessibility bugs and acting on them relatively quickly because they have to. So that also creates a great sort of feedback loop to really help with the accessibility of the CMS on the whole. That's interesting. I hadn't hadn't thought of that. Were you working on Drupal before you came to Google? And I guess my follow-up question, which you can wrap all into one answer is, is is that a, is it a spare time project for you or does Google Google support you in your in your work for Drupal? It's very much a spare time project for me. <laughs> I was doing this long before Google. Uh, yeah, I've been part of the Drupal community, I think now for about 12 or so years and uh, maybe more. And I've been working at Google now for two years. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Google just had to take Drupal when you can. Well, and, they, yeah. to say, that's what you're doing in your spare time is working on Drupal. Well, let's yeah. talk about accessibility and, and what it means for you to be a maintainer of accessibility at, at Drupal. And what are, what are the kinds of things that you're working on in that capacity? So an accessibility maintainer with the, the Drupal project is really somebody who acts as a gatekeeper for Drupal core. And what that means is that anything new in Drupal core is going to have to be reviewed by the maintainers to ensure that there's not a regression in accessibility. And ideally, we will also be able to find potential blockers and help the community find ways to really remove those accessibility blockers. Um, we are not responsible for or maintaining the community contributed modules, but of course we try to be available to give feedback. So our, our role really is to take a look at what goes into core and do our best to make sure that things are moving in the right direction. And then if somebody wants to build a site based on Drupal, are there accessibility specific tools that they would necessarily work with? Or is the idea that it is so accessible by default and by the work of the maintainers that whatever they build has a pretty good chance of being accessible? If somebody were to use Drupal out of the box with all of the current experiences that it has within it, then they would have the right foundation to create an accessible website. The biggest sort of risk there is that as content is added into a Drupal site, one has to kind of pay attention to what the content editors are putting into the site and how they're putting it in. So an individual building a Drupal site might want to think very carefully about the forms that they create so that they can make sure that the forms are supportive to those who are entering content and help to kind of reduce the possibility of somebody putting in content that's not accessible. And is there material within Drupal resources that people can rely on to sort of, or, or is it basically just an understanding of building accessibility content on the web in general that would help people most? In this context, it would really be an understanding of building accessible content because one of the things about Drupal is 
uh, you know, it's, I mentioned the giant box of Legos. Since you can build whatever you want out of that giant box of Legos, it's, um, or I guess the plural for Legos is Lego, but um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, I don't know, but I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> if you were to do that, you're coming up with whatever you want. So, you know, I, um, my kids love to build with Lego and they, you know, if they're trying to build something really tall, they're going to build it however they see fit. Right. I, I don't, have the ability to say, wow, your sort of sideways tower there is going to fall apart. Here's a manual that'll tell you how to give it some structure. (laughs) If they would read it anyway. (laughs) Right. So it's kind of the same thing with, with Drupal and accessibility. You know, we, as people who are building Drupal sites, and now that I uh, am at Google, I'm not building Drupal sites really anymore, but as Drupal site builders, it's on us to really think about the choices that we're making. And uh, the Drupal project maintainers and community tries its best to put information out there and make it available. But that doesn't mean that it's just as simple as following a couple steps and coming up with something accessible. How about the site building side of Drupal? Is that pretty accessible? It is. There have been some really great improvements over the last, I want to say, year, two years, where community members have gotten together to work on some core initiatives with accessibility in mind right from the beginning. There are a couple of projects. Layout Builder is one of them, and Layout Builder is a project that enables the site builder to create very specific fields and layouts within the forms uh, so that the user who's filling those out can follow a, a structured process. But Layout Builder itself went through extensive accessibility reviews and really reached out to the maintainers to review the work along the way, not just at the end, but as they were coming up with the designs and as they were starting to implement them, they kept coming back and saying, is this available for somebody who's a hands-free user? Does this still work? Is this too frustrating to be used for somebody who's a screen reader user? And, and we had so many opportunities to have these discussions and to help them come up with solutions. And now this is part of CORE. Also, two new themes, the administration theme, Claro has been added to CORE, and a front-end theme, Olivero, has been added to CORE. And both of these themes, uh, the teams, the community teams that decided to build these, they started from the same perspective. How can we make this accessible? And then they started designing it and coming up with how it was going to work. So it really changed the level of -of out-of-the-box accessibility, even for a site builder, within Drupal so that these tools are conceptualized with accessibility in mind rather than retrofitted to be accessible. Yeah, that's what you always want. And it's always so exciting to hear it, though, because we advocates of accessibility tend to, to preach that, but you don't always hear about projects where somebody said, you know, that's what we need to do is start from the accessibility perspective mm-hmm. and go out from there. 
Yeah. And it's, uh, I'll, I'll admit, I think it's only fair to everybody out there who's listening to this to admit that this isn't easy. This is very challenging work, but it is work that we have to do. It's genuinely a human rights issue. This is, this is what will really enable people to actually live in a world that doesn't put up these false barriers to their ability to thrive and exist. So I'm not going to lie, it's not easy, but it is what we have to do. And it is where innovation can come from. Well, Rain Michaels, thank you so much for being on Parallel. I'm going to have links to a lot of the projects that we talked about today in the show notes. But if you'd like to just quickly tell people a couple places where they can find you online if they want to follow up about uh, some of your great work. Yes. So I do occasionally check Twitter, though I'm not as active as I should be. Uh, But that is an easy place to reach me if you send me a direct message. My Twitter account is Rain Bria, so that's R-A-I-N-B, as in boy, R-E-A-W. And uh, so that's probably the easiest place to find me. Great. Well, thanks again for being here. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to Parallel at relay.fm slash parallel. You can also find all of the show notes for this and all of our episodes there. We also do transcripts, which I don't plug nearly enough. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Parallel Pods. You can also find me on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. See you in two weeks. Bye now.